Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lutheran Library podcast. Lutheran Library is a podcast part of the Transcendent Truth Media Network of Confessional Lutheran Podcasts. If you'd like any more information about that, go to www.transcendenttruthmedia.com. Uh, we have other podcasts there. We have um, articles there. We have an about section, we have a contact section, and a merch store. So if you're interested in any of that at all, uh, please do go there. Uh, Today we're going to be tackling something that goes hand-in-hand with our series on early Lutheran Reformation history on the Blood and Bone Church History and Historical Theology podcast. And this today we're going to be doing the 95 Theses. So we did an episode on Blood and Bone on the 95 Theses from a historical perspective, and we're going to be digging a little bit more into that in a deeper, well, really in a much deeper way, a comparative way, which compares early to late Luther and the works to his other works and so on, and his influence and impact and all of that. But today we're just dealing with the 95 Theses themselves, Um, not so much their historical impact or their story. If you'd like any of that, Please go and check out the podcast episode that we have already on Blood and Bone. Or, of course, feel free to wait for uh, the future episodes as we dig deeper into that material. Um, But right now, 95 Theses, okay? So, the grace of God be with you in in all its fullness and power. This is how uh, Luther begins it. He he addresses this, of course, as we were talking about in October 31st. Um, This is All Saints um, Eve. Yeah. All Hallows' Eve is technically how they would call it, but we call it Halloween. And it's addressed to Luther's Archbishop at the time, which is the Archbishop of Mainz and Magdeburg and lots of other places and blah, blah, blah. Of course, go to the History Podcast if you want to hear about that. But so he's he gives a little preface about this um, um, letter disputation, these theses, to the Archbishop. And he begins with, the grace of God be with you in all its fullness and power. Spare me, right? He takes a stance of humility. Most reverend father in Christ and most illustrious prince that I, the dregs of humanity, have so much boldness that I've dared to think of a letter to the height of your sublimity. Right? So he is acknowledging his humble posture before um, this, you know, quote unquote, this great archbishop. And of course, at the time of... Luther's writing of these 95 theses, he did not know to the extent that the church was involved in these selling of indulgences. He didn't know that the Pope was in on it. He didn't know that the Archbishop was in on it. And he thought, he he was absolutely convinced, oh, I'm going to put forward these theses and the church and the church officials will 100% agree with me. Once they hear my letter, once they come to the debates and hear me out, they'll be on my side. We'll get rid of these indulgences and all of that. So he's taking a a posture here that lifts up the church and their authority and their majesty and all of that. And he is is coming humbly to ask that they hear him out um, about what is being done about the indulgences and uh, to... Essentially, it's kind of like you assume someone agrees with you. Let's say they're a police officer. You assume that the police officer agrees with you that a certain thing is a crime, but you don't know that they're in on the crime because they're getting half the cut, right? So you go and you tell them, hey, this guy is selling drugs on the corner of the street to little kids. And he says, yeah, well, you, you say, I'm sure once you hear of this, right? So this is kind of the posture that Luther was originally taking and um, that he really took until he had no other 
no other option, no other, um, no other uh, course of action here, right? So let's get into a little bit of the theses themselves, right? So um, he begins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He essentially invokes <laughs> he invokes the sacred triune God. Always the funny guy, our Luther, isn't he? Thesis one, and we're just gonna walk through them. As we said, don't be surprised if a lot of this is kind of weird stuff. But uh, as we said in the in the history podcast about it, um, this was like his his thought needed to develop a lot. So thesis one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, "Potentiatum agate," willed that the whole world of the whole life story of believers should be repentance. Thesis two, this word cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance, and he learned this essentially from um, actually Erasmus, which is why it gets really funny in Bondage of the Will when um, Erasmus brings this up to kind, kind of trump Luther, and he says, oh, um, et potentia, well, I don't know the Latin, whatever. And Luther says, you know, well, I learned this from you, that it can't mean penance, but it means repentance, right? It does not mean confession and satisfaction um, administered by priest, and then the satisfaction is done by the, uh, by the confessee, right? Or the one confessing their sin, rather. Yet it means, this is thesis three, that not inward repentance only, nay, there is no inward repentance which does not outwardly work diverse mortifications of the flesh. The penalty of sin, therefore, continues so long as the hatred of self continues. But this is true inward repentance and continues until our entrance into the kingdom. So here we have, you, you could say that this is something that changed along along into the future of Luther. but and, and it's not so much that he did a 180 turn. Because if you go and you read, if you go and you read the Book of Concord, especially Melanchthon's thought, um, but it is in Luther as well, is that they are teaching that the inward repentance does have external signs, right? And as Luther says here, uh, diverse mortifications of the flesh. But we also confess in the Book of Concord that repentance in truth is nothing more than contrition, recognizing that you need a Savior, and faith, realizing that you have one in Jesus Christ. So our repentance, properly speaking, is not the diverse mortification of the flesh. And we can also talk about this in regard to justification by faith alone and the role that good works play in the matter, right? Good works do not save you. Good works do not justify you. Yet, of course, Lutherans do teach Article 6, um, Article 20, wherever you want to go, good works, no obedience, whichever way you want to take this, that the one who is justified does then live in love toward others because they've been freed from the law. Now they are free to go and do the law and they have a changed heart. But we don't want to take this too far, do some kind of fruit checking stuff. Um, so it is, it's just to note that um, here we have, I guess, the beginnings of this kind of thing, that repentance, um, it, it does not just manifest itself inwardly in your contrition and faith, but your faith um, affects things outwardly. It's the same with sin, right? We would teach as Luther does. The sin itself is not really what you do with your hands or your mouth or your feet, but the sin is in the heart. And uh, what you do with your hands, your feet, your mouth, these are symptoms of the disease. The disease is sin. The disease is in your heart. The disease is not um, drinking alcohol to excess, but that is the symptom of sin itself. And um, 
Luther then says, and again, just to reread Thesis 4, because it's a little bit different, but it does tack on the end here of Thesis 2 and 3. The penalty of sin, therefore, continues so long as hatred of self continues. Right? He says, this is the true inward repentance. Now, this he does change on. Is repentance a hatred of self? Right? And, and, and through the 95 Theses and through his other early works, which we'll, be, we'll of course, be tackling on this podcast, Lutheran Library, but it, it's, it's not just this kind of weird, um, overdone humility that says, I'm a worm, I'm not worth anything, I hate myself, I'm so gross, sin is so bad, but it's contrition, right? So it's not, and, and that doesn't just mean, again, a sorrow for sin, it, it does in part, but that's why I use the term and the phrase, it is real recognizing that you need a savior, right? So it's not necessarily about fostering this kind of weird, cringy, grotesque self-hatred or a hatred for yourself, though there are times when that's, <laughs> that's healthy to have. But it's all about recognizing who you are before God, your hopeless state, the fact that you need a Savior, so that, and, and God is always bringing the law and the condemnation and the accusation down upon us for a purpose. And that purpose is not to get you to hate yourself. That purpose is not even behavior modification. But the purpose is so that you can realize that you have a Savior in Jesus Christ. We call this the alien work of God and the proper work of God, right? And so anytime that God is using the law, he's using the law for the sake of love. He's using the law for the sake, we could even say for the sake of the gospel, is why he uses the law. Right? So he uses the law to bring you closer to Christ, to bring you to the cross so that you can realize that there, that's where your sins were crucified on the cross. So if you want to talk about hating sin, well, let's talk about how, what happened to sin on the cross, okay? So that's really the purpose of the law. So I just wanted to point that out because um, I don't want anybody anybody to go home and think, oh, I don't hate myself enough. I don't hate my... But at the same time, he's right. In the, if you have this kind of self-love, like the main line does and the liberal theologians do, and that's why there's such a clean break between what they're doing and what, let's say, we're doing at Transcendent Truth. Though this isn't that this doesn't count for all of them, but there's that there's that very big wing in both the left and the right, which is always trying to justify itself. On the left, you have people who have have taken self love and they've made self love their god. So they've made in making self love their god, they say, well, I I am this way and I love myself and God loves me. Therefore, what I do and what my inclinations can't be sin. Right there, I'm speaking of something unspoken at the moment, obviously. Um, is, and so they, they always want to push back on people who are saying sin, 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 sinners and law and stuff and condemnation. The church on the right does the same thing. Right? They're always trying to justify themselves, but they're trying to do that over and against the other. Right? So they're saying, well, the other person does this, I do it better. Or I do this and they don't do it at all. Right, And so the point is neither behavior modification to get you to to love yourself it's not to get you to hate yourself so that you can be in a mode of process towards something better nor is it to just love what you are at the moment nor is it to hate yourself from now until the end of time right so this this hatred of self there's a there's a place for it but only insofar as a means to an end it itself is not really useful 
um, not to the Christian, not, not, to, not to anything. Um, of course, if we love good, we have to hate evil. And that's really where the, where the perfect thing is. But we don't really have to have, I guess, the material in this text itself to talk about that. At the moment, at least. So he takes, he goes from here, and he says that this repentance, and, and so of course we've we've now distinguished what we should take from this and keep from this. We should keep this idea that repentance is continual, and it, it goes into our entrance into the kingdom of heaven until the old Adam finally, truly dies for that one last time, and we put him in the grave. Um, is that it's not that a, a hatred of self should continue from now until then, but rather that our repentance should. That our, our, well, really, yeah, um, our, our fight with sin and our, our, what we say in baptism, right? What does um, baptism with water signify? It signifies that the old man, and, the old Adam should daily be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts. And how does that happen? It happens by recognizing that what we are, first of all, is not just, it's not lovable, and it, it, something is wrong, right? And it needs to be rectified. And how that's going to be rectified, the law says that the, the penalty for sin, or really the wages of sin, the payment, the reward, the reward you want. Because we're always talking about like a reward for our works. You really want to see what the reward for your works is? It's really death. And any time that we receive anything, quote unquote, a reward, or, or even say that we do a good work, uh, in, in, in so far as we confess as well, so you, you're bound to this, Lutherans, is... That what is seen as good is seen as good for the sake of our faith in Christ Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. It's not that the works we do are any better than the works that the virtuous Muslim or the virtuous atheist does. Um, rather, that, and so this, I, I see people get caught up on this because they talk about how absurd it would be, and indeed it would be absurd, to say that um, there's no difference between giving to orphans and killing a bunch of people, right? These are all sinful works before God. That's, so that confuses them. But then it also confuses them because then they plainly confess that although one might see a virtuous Muslim, that we confess that unbelievers can't do good works. Well, they can do good works quorum deo. And that's why this two kind of righteousness thing came into play, why it's important, even though it's not really correct, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, <laughs> sometime, um, is, is, is what it's all about is they're trying to wrap their heads around how someone, quorum deo, can be uh, less, let's say, less, or really unrighteous, while they can be righteous, yet quorum mundo, before men, the virtuous Muslim is far more righteous than they are, right? It's hard to wrap your mind around. The key is this, is that your good works are seen as good. They're seen as righteous. Not 70% good, mind you. Not 60%, not 30%, not 90%, 100%. Um, because 99% righteousness is unrighteous before God. Um, it, it's that for the sake of their faith, it's, it's, it's imputative imputative righteousness. All righteousness before God is counted, not earned, not worked for, not by us anyway. Thesis 5. The Pope does not intend to remit and cannot remit any penalties other than those which he has imposed either by his own authority or that of the canons. Now this is big and he's going to take this further but I just want to stop here and note this is a bold statement. The Pope does not intend to remit <laughs> any penalties other than those which he has imposed either by his own authority or that of the kings. <coughs> so, um, I say this is a bold move 
because, again, remember, he was going into this thinking that the Pope would be on his side, thinking that the Pope, once he heard what was going on, would have a freak out and say, no, 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 we can't have this, because, of course, in Luther's mind, the Pope knows what the Pope should know, and the Pope is believing what the Pope should believe, but he's not. So, if you recall that episode with me and Pastor Roland on the 95 Theses, Theses, that this is really peak Roman Catholic doctrine, in a lot of ways, as we see it now in modern day, or as we see it even in the medieval age. Um, so Luther here is being a good Roman Catholic, but the problem was that the Pope was not, right? The po he said, the Pope does not intend to remit and cannot remit. Well, in fact, we'd agree with him that he cannot remit, but Luther was literally wrong here. The Pope did intend to remit these <laughs> things, which um, were not, and, and we're going to get to that explanation, but... He's saying the Pope does not intend to admit anything other than a church tradition which is distinct from a sin before God. That's what he's saying, right? So thesis six, he's going to take this a little bit further then. The Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring that it's been remitted by God and by assenting to God's remission. Though, to be sure, he may grant remission in cases reserved to his judgment. To his judgment, mind you. If his right to grant remission in such cases were despised, the guilt would remain entirely forgiven. Okay, so he's taking it a little bit further, and we're still going to take it further, but let's stop here again. The Pope cannot remit the sins that we do against the commands of God. The Pope can only remit things against sins against canon law. Now, is, is the idea that a sin against canon law um, will send you to hell if it's not forgiven? Is it a venial sin or a mortal sin? Because remember, we're dealing with the medieval Roman Catholic system here. Uh, a lot of questions are going unanswered for the modern Lutheran who's looking at this text. Which is why Pastor Roland and I said, if you're going to dig into this, you need to be digging into this with a historical commentary or with a lot of prior knowledge of Roman Catholicism, at least, right? Or of the historic church, and at least what the conversation was happening at the time. Right? So, if his right to grant remission in such cases were despised, the guilt would remain entirely forgiven. And that's why we need to ask, does that mean they'll go to hell? Um, if not, and we're going to answer that as well. But um, the Pope, Luther's saying, can only, all he can really do, he, can, he can't remit your guilt before God, but he can declare that God has remitted that guilt. Now, this gets into some interesting things in the way that we talk about the sacraments of confession and absolution. And, um, again, we're going to be doing a comparative thing on blood and bone of Luther's theology in the 95 Theses and the other early works with some of his later works. So we'll be getting into this a lot more. But the whole concept here is, I guess it's, again, as we're always talking about, is this... Um, how does this fit, or how does the conversation of universal objective justification and subjective justification fit into this, into this whole thing? And how does the relationship between God's forgiveness of sin at the cross, right, fit in with the priest or the pastor proclaiming that forgiveness in the words of the absolution? Is he then saying, I forgive you of your sins, or God has forgiven you of your sins? And this is that big... Lutheran Reformed, Lutheran Evangelical, Lutheran Anglican debate that happens all the time, where the Evangelicals, the non-Lutherans, are getting a little bit upset with the wording we use liturgically. And even Lutherans are upset at it. 
and I can't count. I don't have enough hands to count enough fingers um, to name all the pastors, the Lutheran pastors I know who have intentionally changed the um, right for confession and absolution out of their service book because it either made them uncomfortable or it made their parishioners uncomfortable. Because, well, and it's the same idea here, right? That this idea that I cannot remit sins, but I can only pronounce to you that God has remitted your sins, or they say, or that um, your sins, and this is the worst one, can be remitted by God if you do X, right? So thesis seven, God remits guilt, this is a sin against God's law, to no one whom, to whom he does not at the same time humble in all things and bring into subjection to his vicar, the priest. So <clears throat> here we have this kind of question between fruits and faith, as we do all the time, right? How do I know my sins are forgiven? Well, as Luther is saying, God does not remit anyone's sins unless he also humbles them. And this humbleness flows throughout the 95 Theses, but it's even flowing out through the Heidelberg Disputation. And we're going to get to the Heidelberg Disputation eventually. And there's two perspectives on the Heidelberg Disputation, just as a little nugget of wisdom for when we get there. One group says this is Heidelberg Disputation is the time that Luther finally got the Lutheran doctrine. Others say, still not quite, still on the move until the Diet of Worms. Now, all this is a matter, it's a big fuss for good reason. If we say, whether it's humility or good works, and, and this Luther gets um, up in, involved in all these kinds of words and phrases. For example, God does not forgive the sins of any who he does not also, um, let's say, produce good works in. And this phraseology, essentially, whether we say humble or produce good works or whatever it is, is designed to do two things. One, um, reinforce the necessity of these things in the life of a believer and for final salvation. And secondly, it is to say that these things do not grant the thing itself. So he's not saying humbleness forgives your sins, but he's saying God does not forgive the sins of any who he does not humble. And if that language makes you uncomfortable, that's good and it rightly should. And that's why lots of other Lutheran theologians have taken ways to, to tackle this language, uh, ways to talk about, especially in regard to sanctification. Gerhard Ferdi has an interesting one. And it's not, it's not unique to him, though, but is where you have this concept of a progressive sanctification and a producing of the fruits of faith. Um, but that you are blind to it by the eyes of this world. So you can't see any progress in yourself, but you believe that it's there. And Edmund Schlink, um, in his book, A Theology of the Lutheran Confessions, that's a good uh, book on symbolics, by the way, is he, he essentially says the same thing. He, he says, in essence, um, that... Oh, how does he put it? Let me, let me try and remember. But it's basically like... Yeah, um, you will never see these things in your own life. You, you might, but if you do, it's probably an error. And it's probably the thing that shouldn't happen. But you believe that these things will necessarily happen. Now, all of that, I, I'm not convinced of the of the purpose of this is, is really any use to, honestly, to the Christian life. I think it, more often than not, just leads people astray into fruit checking and um, terror. So... Thesis 8, the, <coughs> the potential canons are imposed only on the living, and according to them, nothing should be opposed, imposed on the dying. Now, again, this brings us back to our 
um, question about breaking sins against canon law, do they send you to hell? No. They're only for this life. They do not go into purgatory. They do not go... Um, they do not send people to hell. Now, with that in mind, though, remember Thesis 7, the latter part. Um, if God forgives your sins, he also humbles you, and what does that, What else does he do? Brings you into subjection into the priest and the canon law. Okay? So, again, he's saying these things, like breaking a sin against canon law does not um, send you to hell, but if you're saved, you will obey canon law. So, again, it's more of this... Cliche. I, I really, I really would call it a cliche Protestantism, right? Because that's really what it's become. Because Protestants now are they love this ninety-five theses material. They love this Erasmus material that you get later in Erasmus works. They love this idea of, um, yeah, a faith that justifies, but then works are still somehow necessary coming in through the back door and uh, still a way to basically affirm justification by faith alone and um, affirm the necessity to be a good person and then therefore bring the law back into salvation. But they also gain a new law of theological orthodoxy and justification by faith alone. Oh, what a good sale, eh? So the potential canons are imposed only on the living. If you die, that's it. Thesis 9, therefore the Holy Spirit in the Pope is kind to us because in his Degree, decrees, he always makes exception of the article of death and of necessity. So there is, um, obviously at this point he still believes that the Pope is a believer. That's going to change relatively fast. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, when he's writing this, he of course is appreciative of the fact that the historic tradition of the popes and the, and the Catholic Church and canon law and the early church and the medieval church has always made exception uh, for canon law in the matters of death and of necessity. And still to this day, the Roman Catholic Church in contemporary era makes a lot of exceptions. These people are not cold-hearted. They are not unloving. Um, they are not this and they are not whatever, whatever. I, I, of course, uh, what I'm trying to say here is Luther was living in a very different time. So he's going to find out that his pope is extremely evil. And I, I just, just want to remind us to be glad that we can look down at the Roman Catholic Church down the street and say, that's not the Roman Catholic Church that Luther knew. Um, this is the, it's the Roman Catholic Church that Luther wanted to be a part of, but didn't exist, at least in his region at the time. And, and sometimes, more than others, evil men rise themselves up to high positions in the state, in the church, as fathers, as mothers, this is just reality. And that doesn't mean that the office is unholy. That does not mean that what it was is invalidated. That doesn't mean that what it will become later is invalidated. But that just means that at this moment, at this time, it's very brutal. And of course, me saying that is not a validation of the current Roman Catholic Church in any way, shape, or form. I just wanted to draw uh, our notice to that. That Roman Catholic theology has changed. Um, or not. What, I, what I'm trying to say is, this was a temporary era of theological and practical abuse. I'm, you know, that's what I'm saying. And that almost all of these, if not all, of these theological and practical abuses have been resolved, especially by the Counter-Reformation. So, again, anyways, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just fumbling over myself at this point. Thesis 10. Ignorant and wicked are the doings of those priests who, in the case of the dying, reserve um, canonical penances for purgatory. Now, 
you, 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 you might be tempted to see and think, okay, um, here he is saying, well, if the priest doesn't remit his sins, and this is the big thing that I really want to draw your attention to, is that this, this article, and there's others like it here, this um, and the others like it are essentially saying that the um, um, priestly administration of word and sacrament is not the end-all and be-all. So he's saying that the, 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 not even the Pope can um, withhold your sins before God that he has forgiven. Okay? Now, he's, you might be tempted to read Thesis 10 and say, well, of course, this means that if the priest withholds the sins against canon law when they die, well, then they're going to purgatory and they have to suffer for them. But Luther's saying, um, not in this article, but he's saying elsewhere, well, no, when they die, these things are remitted. All these things are for is for this life. Essentially for pastoral guidance of the sheep is how Luther is seeing these things. Thesis 11. This changing of the canonical penalty to the penalty of purgatory is quite evidently one of the tares that were sown while the bishops slept. Now here again is the assumption that the bishops are not the ones who are doing this themselves because they were. Thesis 12. In former times, the canonical penalties were imposed not after, but before absolution of true contrition. So, <clears throat> there's some good and some bad to both of these. Now, I know Lutheran pastors who are very famous, and I won't name them, but they've said it publicly. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to fight in the comments section. Very famous. You know who they are. They have said... They do not absolve people unless before the absolution to prove that they have true contrition. Literally, it's almost like it's taken straight out of Thesis 12 here. That they go and um, submit themselves to the temporal worldly consequences of their sins. Then they will grant contrition. Okay? So this is essentially what Luther's talking about. That in the former times, canonical penalties were imposed not after, but before. It's, it's not the same because what Luther's really referencing is he's referencing, especially in the early church, especially in the time of persecution, um, when people would apostatize by fear of death. Um, then they had to go through like several months or several years or even a lifetime of being outside of the church, a penitent or a this and that, or I forget the term for it. Not in the club, right? But showing that they were really, really, um, what's the word? Committed to rejoining the club, okay? To put it in crude terms. And so when the priest, when the bishop had seen, proved um, before their eyes that this person really, really wanted to enter the club, then they would be let in, right? Um, now, my issue with that is that it's not at all unconditional. And if you know anything about me, you know that all that I care about is the unconditional absolution. The absolution that is free and creative. Um, so you cannot say you must go and do, even if it's worldly penalties, even if it's canonical canonical penalties. Not at all. You can't say any penalties. You, you can't say you must do this first before absolution. Absolution is initiatory. Um, and the confession only exists insofar as to bring us to the absolution. Um, and uh, again, go and read Edmund Schlink. Thesis 13. The dying are freed by death from all penalties. They are not already dead, 
they are already dead to the canonical rules and have a right to be released from them. Now, here is really what I would consider the root um, thesis 13 of a lot of what Luther talks about in his Galatians commentary and the death of the law in baptism. And this has to do with the bridging between his concept of canonical authority um, and being freed by physical life, life, what would I call it? Life death, body death, um, in two, and through body death, you die to the laws of this world. Your worldly body dies, you die to the laws of this world. That includes canonical church laws. That also includes societal civil laws. In spiritual baptism, which is all baptism, right? Um, so I'm not making a distinction between water and, and the spirit baptism as the evangelicals do. What I am trying to distinguish is between the laws of this world, canonical or civil, and um, the spiritual laws of God. In baptism, you die, right? But it's a spiritual death. Obviously, your physical body doesn't die. So it's a spiritual death. And uh, when you die spiritually, you die spiritually to the law. And this is essentially the argument that's made in Galatians. This is also the argument that's made in Romans, um, let me see if I, I think it's Romans 7. No. Am I? Yeah, Romans 7. <clears throat> Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking of those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only so long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has a sexual relation with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, then she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, that's the world, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, and how do we do this? Romans 6, right? We'll get there in a second. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So let's turn to Romans 6, right? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. So all of this has to do with the bridging of getting from here, and, and at this moment Luther is obsessed with what's going on in this life with the church, and that as he gets older, as he matures a little bit, um, he gets into this kind of, I don't want to say a spiritualized notion of theology, but a more of a duality or more of a dialectic between this world and, and, and the spiritual eternity. Not to say he's at all Gnostic, he's really not, not even close. But um, is that he's talking here about the death, uh, the physical death which from which we die to the civil law, from which we die to the canonical law. Later on, especially in his Galatians commentary, he's, he's talking about how our spiritual death and baptism, um, which is, uh, again, it's completed physically in the, the physical death to this world, frees us from the spiritual law of God and all penalties against it. So thesis 14, the imperfect health of soul, so that is to say, the imperfect love of dying 
brings with it of the necessity, great fear, and the smaller love. The greater is the fear. Thesis 15. This fear and horror is sufficient in and of itself alone, to say nothing of the other things, to constitute the penalty of purgatory, since it is very near to the horror of despair. So here again, um, and he's, we're going to continue with these thoughts, but here again, Luther is <clears throat> thinking of these things salvifically. Horror, humility, uh, self-hatred. And uh, I just want to say, horror itself does not constitute um, punishment of purgatory, does not constitute um, contrition, does not constitute repentance. Thesis 16. Hell, purgatory, and heaven seem to differ as do despair, almost despair, and the assurance of safety. So here is his kind of spectrum between hell, purgatory, and heaven. Bad, less bad, good. Okay? He's doing this, and this has to do with um, a, lot of the, a lot of the ways that he's speaking about coincide with his experiential, um, what could you say, experiential experience, his existential experience, right? From the law of God comes terror, comes um, threat. And so hell for Luther is perceived as despair, Purgatory is almost despair, and heaven, well, that's assurance of safety. But he's missing a lot here. He's missing, for one, that his experience is not really all that common, and that there's a vast uh, array of different ways to experience these things. For, for example, one might say, no, 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 hell is uh, shame, <clears throat> purgatory almost shame, and then heaven is the <laughs> lack of shame or the v validation of others. Right? So you see how shallow this can get. Just replace these terms with anything else. You want to really get to the bottom of what these things are. Heaven is to be with God in the flesh on earth for eternity. Right? That's really what it is. Heaven, heaven is the presence of God to you, present to you, embodied. Um, <clears throat> hell is being as far away from that as possible. Um, purgatory, right? Well, it doesn't exist for one. But purgation exists. And purgation is in that process of union with God. <clears throat> I'm getting ahead of myself here. Later tonight, actually, me and Pastor Roland will be joined by Athanasius from the Wittenberg Project. And we will be going over, actually, a lot of these concepts talking about theosis, actually. So, thesis 17. With souls in purgatory, it seems necessary that horror should grow less and love increase. So, purgatory, of course, for Luther is a transitory state, a state of progress. We are moving from here to there. We are this, we're becoming this. And how are we doing that? We're doing that by suffering and despair and self-hate. And where are we doing that? We're doing it in this place called purgatory. Thesis 18. It seems unproved, either in reason or scripture, that they are outside of the state of merit, that is to say, of increasing love. So here, um, Luther is understanding things again as process. He does not say of love, he says of increasing love. And so who is God going to save? He's going to save the one who's on the path to progress. And you hear a lot of evangelicals speak this way too. And it's been said before, I've said it before, I'll say it again many more times before I die, is that Roman Catholics, both contemporary and historic, and evangelicals, not including Lutherans, are very similar. Very similar. Everything is about process. Um, especially the unlearned evangelicals who sound almost identical to the Roman Catholics, where they say things like, well, I'm a better person than Hitler, 
or I'm becoming good, or they look at they look at who one who should go free from prison, the one who has, and they bring them before the court. They say, Have you made character progress? Have you become reformed? Are you reforming this and that, this and that? And so this is Luther's idea. He understands merit as increasing love, not love itself, not worth itself, but increasing worth. Thesis 19, again, it seems unproved that they, or at least that all of them, are certain or assured of their own blessedness, though we might be quite certain of it. Thesis 20, therefore, by full remission of all penalties, the Pope means not actually of all, but only of those imposed by himself. Again, this goes back to the distinction between the laws of God and the laws of this world. The laws of God, eternal, spiritual, the laws of man, ecclesiastical, civil, temporary, of this world. And so, Thesis 21, Therefore, those preachers of indulgences are in error, who say that by the Pope's indulgences a man is freed from every penalty and saved. So Luther's saying, no, you're not freed from every penalty. You're not saved by this. And that's the big thing, is the question of saved. Right? Save from what? Of course, the parlance here is referring to eternal salvation. You're not saved from this. You're not even freed from every penalty from this. You are merely released from ecclesiastical timeout zone, to put it crudely. Okay? <clears throat> Thesis 22. Whereas he remits to souls in purgatory no penalty which, according to the canons, they would have had to pay in this life. Because, remember, Luther's, Luther's understanding purgatory, as and so do almost all Roman Catholics these days, because Luther at this time was a good Roman Catholic. He knew his theology well. And so they understand purgatory really almost as gospel. Like you've made it, but God just needs to help you through that little last bit of becoming, walking through, climbing the rest of that ladder up to perfection. So... Um, he's saying, right, You, what can you really offer to someone in purgatory that they're not already getting from God and the angels and the blah, 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 right? Nothing. Because purgatory is where you go to be made perfect. Purgatory is not the place where you need things remitted. They'll be remitted in purgatory. So 20, thesis 23. If it is at all possible to grant to anyone the remission of all penalties how, whatsoever, it is certain that this remission can only be granted can be granted only to the most perfect, that is, to the very fewest. Now here, we need to ask Luther, what do you mean um, that remission can be granted only to the most perfect? Hmm? Because why would somebody who is the most perfect need the remission of the most of all sins? If they're perfect, they have no sins. So you say the most perfect, they have the fewest sins. Why would you only be able to give forgiveness to those people? Well, think back to... Was it Thesis 10? That God only remits to sins those who he has humbled. Or, to put it another way, God only justifies those by faith alone who have already been or who will show and prove to be justified by their works. So again, this is a, a theology of, really, of terror. And um, Luther likes that. That's what he's been saying the whole time, right? Is that the process from here to where we need to be is to go through terror. It's um, and self-hatred, and these things he says are good. Thesis 24, it must needs be, therefore, that the greater part of the people are deceived by that indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of release from penalty. Thesis 25, the power which the Pope has in a general way over pur purgatory is just like the power which any bishop or curate has in a special way within his own diocese or parish. 
26. The Pope does well when he grants remission to souls in purgatory, not by the power of the keys, which he does not possess, but by way of intercession. So this brings us back to, again, that, that earlier thesis, um, <clears throat> which was about um, granting forgiveness for legitimate guilt against God's law, that he, he can't give it himself, but he has to only assent to the fact that God forgives you of it and pronounce that, pronounce that over it and declare it to you. So, I don't forgive you, he's saying, but God has forgiven you. And here in Thesis 26, we see this again, that he's saying, you can't remit the sins of those in purgatory, um, and if you do, it's not by the power of the keys. Here's the big thing, which you do not possess, which he, the Pope, which the Pope does not possess. Now here, this is crazy to me. Because when we think of Roman Catholics in the modern sense, we think, like, their main thing is believing that the keys of the kingdom were given distinctly to Peter. And through Peter, the other bishops share in it. And through the bishops, the other priests share in it. And through the priests, the deacons share in it. So on and so forth, right? Now, the, the big thing is he just throws it back in their face, which you don't possess, <laughs> but by way of intercession. So again, he's not saying... I forgive all your sins to you in purgatory, but he's interceding with God. He's saying, God, please, for the sake of your son, please forgive the sins of those in purgatory. This is a very, um, not Lutheran, not what we would think of as Roman Catholic. This is very strange to us, to our ears. Thesis 27. They preach men who say that so soon as the penny jingles in the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. We say, the more catchier way to say this is, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. Thesis 28. It's certain that when the penny jingles into the money box, gain and avarice can be increased, but the result of the intercession of the church is in the power of God alone. Okay, so again, um, there is here a distinction that Luther is making between what the church can do and what God can do. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that we like this distinction as Lutherans, or that we should maintain and keep what he's doing here. Rather, what we should say is that there is a distinction between what the word and the sacrament, the means of grace, can do by the power of God through the church and his ministers versus what things like money and mammon and food and blah, blah, blah can do. Right? We trust the things that God has instituted to do the things that they do because he instituted them. We trust, mind you here, we trust confession and the absolution of the priest and the pastor to actually do what it says it does, which is to remit, forgive all sins because it is instituted by Jesus Christ with the promise that whatever sins we forgive, they are forgiven. We trust that the Lord's Supper is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Jesus said so. Why do we trust that baptism forgives our sins and enters us into the body of Christ, the church here on earth? Because we read this in the word of God. It's instituted by Christ and it is proclaimed to us into the word of God that it has the promise along with it. So here we want to advise Luther with his own works. <laughs> okay? Uh, Let's see how we're doing for time. We'll keep going for a little bit. Cut it off at the hour. Thesis 29. Who knows whether all the souls in purgatory wish to be bought out of it, as in the legend of St. 
Severinus and Pascal. Now, this is funny, right? What if they're having a good time? <laughs> what if they're not ready? What if they want to be perfected? Because, as Luther would believe at this time, people are not perfected by money and the giving of money. They're not perfected instantaneously, as we would believe, or even as I think it was Pope uh, Benedict or John Paul, he said, purgatory is instantaneous, this idea, which I think is much more uh, palatable to me, at least. But for Luther, this has to be a process, right? So you might be saying, I want to be perfected. And if you're a true saint of God, this is really the idea. If you really do, in Luther's mind at the time, he would say, I'm not saying that he said, but he would say that um, if you do belong in purgatory to receive the gift of perfection, then you would not want to leave it until you're perfected, right? Because you need to be humble, you need to be a worm, you need to hate yourself. <laughs> That's what he's saying here, in essence. Um, thesis 30. No one is sure that his own contrition is sincere, much less that he's attained full remission. Now, again, we get here into the stuff about the controversy with the canons of Dort, with assurance of salvation, where the canon, sorry, not the canons of Dort of the Reform, the canons of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church, where they said, you know, anathema be anyone who's assured of their salvation. Because you can't be sure that you are going to be saved, you can't be sure that you have full remission of sins, and you can't be sure of these things because you can't be sure of your own contrition and its purity. But the Lutherans would come back against, um, well, everybody, both um, the Roman Catholic Church here, but also that of Luther, because this is not Luther quoting anybody. This is Luther himself. Um, <clears throat> but he's not saying here that... Um, um, uh, what am I trying to say? He's not. He's not saying like, you can't be sure of your own contrition being sincere, so you need to bank it on Christ. But he's saying you can't be sure your contrition is sincere, therefore you can't be sure you have the full remission of sins. So we need to, again, throw his own work back in his face, and he would do the same thing to himself, of course, is to say, yes, exactly, we can't be sure that our contrition is sincere, we can't be sure that our repentance is perfect, but we can be sure that it's not. We can be sure that everything that we do, the faith that we have, the repentance that we give, the contrition that's in our hearts, is imperfect, unworthy, and not worthy to be called what they're called by God. Our works are not worthy to be called good. Our faith is not worthy to be called saved, saving. Our contrition is not, is not worthy to be called humility and repentance, right? But these things are counted so for the sake of Christ and by grace. And by grace, that's the key. And so by grace, you can be assured that you have the full remission of sins on the promise of God, not on your contrition, not on your faith, not on anything, but by the promise of God. And this really, actually, we've been uh, here at this church, we've been going through a series on the books, uh, on the book of Genesis, and we're um, uh, up to chapter 7 or whatever, I don't know. Um, no, 6, 6, I don't know, 6.8, 6, 6 verse 8. And uh, <clears throat> it's striking me and the class as well, of course, as it does every time I read through it, but especially when I teach it, is that um, with the, the way that the doctrine of election portrays itself in the text of the book of Genesis and in the whole Old Testament before we have Christ, the one in whom all are uh, elect. And that's a spicy thing I'll say, but I'll say it anyways. Um, is that the, the, like, the particularity of God's predestination screams at you in the Old Testament. And it screams at you because what it's trying to do is it's trying to show you that anytime you try to justify yourself or justify God, things go wrong, right? 
we, we can think of here, uh, Cain and Abel. Why did God choose to accept, I say choose, to accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Are we going to go with, I mean, go and listen to the podcast there when, when it airs on, I think it's airing on Saturday on chapter chapter 5 and the Cain and Abel thing in chapter 4, whatever. Anyways, um, you can think of Sarah's children. You can think of Jacob and Esau. You could think of Isaac and Ishmael. You could think of, we could think of many other things. You could think of Israel as a nation itself among many other nations. There is no reason for God to choose who he chooses, but he does. And so he calls certain people righteous, not because they are. We know from their lives that they're not righteous. They're really quite wicked. And we're not even told explicitly before that that they had faith. But we know that they're righteous because God has chosen them. That's how this works, okay? So thesis 31. Rare as is the man that is truly penitent, so rare is also the man who truly buys indulgences. Such men are most rare. <laughs> uh, thesis 32. They will be condemned eternally together with their teachers who believe themselves sure of their salvation because they have letters of pardon. Now this I would 100% agree with. Um, and this is going to tread on the toes of a lot of people. But this isn't something that we should disagree with Luther on. Um, if you, I agree, your faith in Christ is not perfect. I don't think we should be grace Pharisees, but the words of the gospel are clear. The words of Galatians 1 are clear. Anyone who preaches another gospel, let them be anathema. Uh, as Jude says, these false teachers have been predestined to hell from before the foundations of the earth were laid. And I don't mean that as a Calvinist, I'm just saying that their fate is um, not going to look very good. Um, that those who are, and this goes, um, I want to be careful here. <laughs> is what you're trusting the blood of Christ? Is what you're trusting the word of Christ? Is what you're trusting the um, sacraments? Is what you're trusting the objective cross? Uh, now, if the, now here's what I would say. If you trust with your salvation a letter of pardon, and this letter of pardon is the right of confession and absolution, I'll let this slide. If this letter is um, the Gospel of John, if this letter is <laughs> any piece of Gospel proclamation, if this letter is sermonic, I'll let this slide. The problem with what is happening here is that they're saying the power of money, which is really, to pull this back further, the power of a movement of your will the power of a movement that's something you do, your humility, your works. And eventually Luther is going to see the hypocrisy of his own theses. The, the, the really, what's at the root that bothers him of the paying of indulgences is human activity and salvation. And so he's going to pull that out and throw that out eventually as well. But what it's just interesting to note that I, I hear he had not caught into this. So he can say this, yeah, everyone who trusts this letter of pardon will go to hell. Yet at the same time, he's teaching within the 95 Theses, within the early works, that anyone who is saved is saved by their works of love, by their humility, by this and that, by this thing that they do. And he's covering it all up, saying that, yeah, well, God produces this in it. It's not good enough. So Thesis 33, men must be on their guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons are that in the standard... Inestimable gift of God by which man is reconciled to him. 
For these graces of pardon concern only the penalties of sacramental satisfaction, and these are appointed by man. They preach no Christian doctrine who teach that contrition is necessary in those who intend to buy souls out of purgatory or to buy confessionalia. Right? So again, he's caught up on the money thing, on the money thing. Thesis 36. Every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of pardon. Yes, absolutely. But how is it going to come to them? That's our question for Dr. Luther here. 37. Every true Christian, whether living or dead, has part in all the blessings of Christ and the church. Now, here's the answer that we're looking for. And this is granted to him by God, even without letters of pardon. Now, this again gets into universal objective justification and subjective justification. Do we have forgiveness of God unless it's spoken? Yes. Will it benefit us unless it's spoken? No. So, again, if the letter of pardon is sermonic, then that's what we need. If it's money, if it's a letter that tells you that you need to be humble, if it's a letter that tells you that you need to do temporal penance, then it's not good enough. But rather, every true Christian, whether living or dead, has full part in the blessings of Christ, not totus. No, not, not partum, partum, but totus, right? Totally. All of it. The whole thing. The whole shebang. The whole kit and caboodle of Christ and his benefits. We have it all. So that will stop there. We'll pick it up with Thesis 38 in the next episode. Um, what else do I have to say? Nothing. <laughs> Hopefully, I think it will be probably two more episodes for us. But God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Lutheran Library. It's been a blast. Look out for our, our Theosis episode this evening. God bless you all.